It's January 17, 2021, and I'm chatting with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. And so the first one we'll start with here, the U.S. Air Force invests $60 million in the R&D of the world's fastest supersonic airliner. And so this is, of course, for Boom, which is creating the XB-1 Demonstrator, which is supposed to be right a supersonic aircraft that will be commercially viable and also low low boom so that's i guess why they call it <laughs> boom so you don't get like a lot of the the noise effects that were happening with concord and others so uh they got they said 60 million here i wasn't really too sure because when hermius got 60 million they broke it down they said 15 million was actually stratfi money from afworks 15 million was from executive transport i think and then 30 million was actually private capital so it wasn't clear to me like what were the sources of the 60 million and what that breakdown was. But again, pretty good to see, you know, Afworks Stratfy, you know, making these kinds of um, bridge funding things for the Valley of Death here and, and getting these uh, new companies actually, you know, kind of at least a little bit further along that path, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, it looked to me, it looked like they had uh, that actually secured 270 uh, million total. So I think they got some other other funding, and I think the Stratify was maybe just the sixty million. So um, so it's maybe a small chunk in comparison to the larger funding they got. You know, I, it is interesting. I think I think the question that you know maybe we do have to ask ourselves if is is this a worthy um, military project in terms of um, you know if this is already commercially viable? It looks like they already got an order for fifteen of them from. United Airlines. So if, if they're already moving along, you know, quickly and it looks like, you know, they'll be able to start selling, you know, sell the, selling this at some point to commercial vendors, then does, how much does DOD need to play in that space? Uh, can we, you know, and then the other question, I, the follow-up question I'd have is, are we influencing it in a way that makes it more compatible for some of the missions uh, that were kind of laid out there? So, you know, rapid global transport, that one's probably easy. But, you know, logistics, uh, intelligence, ISR, you know, ISR capability, special ops, uh, they call it Pacific Air Force Operations. I'm not sure what that is specifically. But, but yeah, for these different mission sets that they, they say Overture could go towards, is the military actually able to influence it in a way that makes it more suitable for the military application? Or is it really just funding it and they go commercial and then, you know, at some point DOD goes, yeah, we want some of those, we want to modify them, and then we pay R&D to modify them. You know, so that's a little bit where the business case I'm a little bit unclear on. But uh, but yeah, great to see. This seems like it'll be, you know, a pretty fantastic, you know, civilian and military capability. So good to see that progress is being made on this front. Yeah, one thing, you know, they said that the Overture, which is, I guess, the, the main aircraft that will, they say it will enter service in 2030. So what they're actually working on now is a one-third, I guess, um, prototype model of that full-scale version. And I actually wasn't clear on that, That, but they said it's going to run 100% on sustainable fuels. So maybe that gets towards um, some of the larger sustainability um, goals that the, that the government is trying to get for, towards. But yeah, I kind of agree with you as well. I mean, to some degree, maybe it's like a hedge for you know some of the more audacious technologies. Like if Hermes fails, then maybe this one the boom is kind of like the backup but it seems like if Hermes succeeds then what do you need the boom for right yeah no exactly um yeah so moving on here the next one we got how sda's 
Satellite Swarm will help track hypersonic missiles where others can't from Air Force Magazine. And you, you were interested in this one, but I didn't really get too much out of it. I mean, of course, the, the geo satellites like Sibber, um, right, they can detect launches and stuff, but then I guess they have to calculate the trajectories um, for ballistic missiles. They can't do enough to actually detect at a high enough fidelity to track hypersonic missiles that are maneuverable. Right. And so I guess the point here was if they have a bunch more satellites in lower orbit, then they can actually detect dimmer, dimmer signals and then be able to do better job tracking the maneuverability. Uh, what did you get out of this? What, what was interesting to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that we yeah, we have talked about this with the tranche one and all that, uh, you know, that SDA has been working on for some time. So, yeah, of course, you'll you'll have those those geo assets that can detect. Um, you know, like OPIR, next-gen OPIR is going to be the, the, the biggest capability for this. Um, but, uh, you know, there is there is satellites up there now that do this mission. But, yeah, you have those that will actually be able to detect the launch. They, you know, they're pointed in certain areas. If you're in GEO, you can't really move around very easily. So typically you're pointed in one spot and you're pointed over, you know, where the enemy would typically launch something. So the idea would be is that those satellites could, identify the launch but the one thing that geo assets can't do very well is track them for long periods of time they can track them for some period of time but you know it gets a little bit more tricky uh especially for something like a, a hypersonic that's maybe in a lower orbit uh you know most of the hypersonics operate in that that really low orbit where you know they're just gliding just on that edge between space and the atmosphere and so you know this would be a harder mission for geo whereas this sda capability would actually be able to, because there's so many of them, they'd be able to hand them off to, as part of the constellation, they'd be able to hand it off from one satellite to another, keep continuity. And I think the key there, when you think about it from a missile defense perspective, is that even though you can detect a launch, if something is maneuverable, which most ballistic missiles, ICBMs are not generally that maneuverable, um, once they start to make their descent, you, you kind of know where they're going to go. Um, they might have, you know, some ability to direct the warhead, but it's, you, know, you kind of can, can more track that trajectory, which is what MDA does now. But this, this means that hypersonics will, which would be much more maneuverable, uh, you kind of need to track them through flight and see when they actually enter. So you can't predict it as well. And I think, um, you know, this is where the SDA's assets really come into play is you can, you can track them through flight. So, yeah, that's what I got out of it. Yeah, and I think it kind of goes to show that a lot of times you kind of need multiple systems working together to get that higher fidelity um, and actually get to the mission capability that you need. And it'll probably be, you know, it'll probably be impossible to make a geo satellite do all the things it needed to do to track that, right? Um, and potentially as well, the geo helps the, the LEO satellites do what they otherwise couldn't do. I guess they have a wider range uh, of you, like... I think you'll be able to track a lot more things too, because especially with um, you know some of the newer uh, newer aircraft and things, you know one of the one of the one of the things that you want to do for any new kind of fifth gen or sixth gen aircraft is you want to you want to keep your your infrared uh, uh, sort of exposure you know as light as possible because that's a that's a great way for a missile to lock onto you. So as as some of these assets become you know missiles maybe become also you know trying to avoid detection they might get dimmer and dimmer. So one of the other things they mentioned is detecting lower signatures. And so this might actually expand the aperture for tracking a lot of different things and things that maybe are, you know, lower heat signatures that the OPIR type assets wouldn't be able to do very well. So 
yeah, so it's, it might be an expanded capability beyond just uh, missile defense. By the way, did you see those articles that were showing um, on Reddit that someone, I guess, eagle-eyed a B-2 bomber like from Google uh, Maps, Google Earth? <laughs> I was like, wow, that's, you know, I, it kind of also shows you it's just like these things aren't invisible, right? Like um, there's going to be ways to find and, and track or at least detect um, those types of systems. Oh, that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm a little surprised because usually, I mean, if you go to Google Maps, like, and you look at your, your, like, your house, sometimes it will be from, like, years ago. So they must have, like, <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty awesome. They actually just, like, caught it. I guess they caught it when they were taking snapshots. They caught it in flight. That's, that's yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, I guess. Um, but it, I think it was just some person. Like, I don't think there's people at Google, like, looking at all this stuff and saw it. It was just some guy looking at some random spot on Google Earth, and I was like, hey, look at that. <laughs> that looks like a flying wing. I wonder what that is, right? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, so the next one we got here, how Silicon Valley is helping the Pentagon automate finding targets from military.com. So this is actually a pretty long article that kind of talked about Maven, but also um, a couple other projects as well. And... You know, one of the interesting things here, I'm just going to read out this quote because I think it's it's pretty interesting. You know, they said um, the military is investigating, you know, being able to track, I suppose, uh, missiles coming in. Right. And so here fed at different angle of the missile, the algorithm correctly identified it only 25 percent of the time. But the trouble is that it was confident that it was right 90 percent of the time. So it was confidently wrong. And that's not the algorithm's fault. It's because we fed it the wrong training data. But I mean, like, so one of the interesting things here, and a person was commenting, you know, if you put an apple, like, in front of someone, and then you actually, like, write on a post-it note, iPod, then, like, the the software uh, actually thinks, or the AI thinks it's actually an iPod with pretty high degree accuracy. So it's pretty easy to fake these things. And I was just kind of concerned here. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to be doing some of this uh, target recognition for missiles incoming and you need different algorithm for every angle that the missile could possibly be coming at or something like that, then this becomes kind of a much harder problem than assuming, you know, just the AI can, you know, feed it data from any angle and, and solve that problem with the same high degree of accuracy. So, um, you know, it, I think there's there's going to be these niches. Like, there's just so many different things that AIML can do across the force. Some of them might turn out to be harder than expected, and others, you know, might be easier. But, uh, yeah, so this was an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I think this is my fundamental concern with, with our move to AI is that the data across DoD is, you know, historically, my experience at least, it's always been questionable. I mean, you pick a system, uh, you know, acquisition system, you know, read, you know, readiness systems like Remus. Anytime I've ever had to access data uh, and pull it down, there was a ton of cleanup. And it was like, this doesn't make sense. Oh, what is that? Like, how, you know, this doesn't, you know, correlate. Like, you, you have to spend a ton of time kind of cleaning that data up to make sure uh, that actually when you actually like run some numbers and create some charts, you know, that it actually, you can explain it and you have some understanding of, yeah, this actually, you know, seemed like I have all the right, uh, kind of data elements, you know, mapped out and, you know, you really had to do your homework though. And so 
you know, one thing we're not going to be able to do with AI, and this is going to be one of Jake's, I think, challenges with the ADA project is, is going to be feeding all this operational data that they're getting uh, to come up with, you know, new conclusions or faster decision, you know, analytics um, to help, you know, help commanders kind of sort through all the complexity, but it's going to be messy and you're going to have to make sure that the, the data is right uh, to, to make it work right. And so, yeah, this does not surprise me a lot because you think about, you think about all the different um, systems that are actually, you know, pulling data down from, you know, imagery data from tons of different Intel systems and things like that. And they're all probably going to have like slightly different tagging mechanisms and, uh, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So this is something we'll have to work through. I will say with the other thing with, with Maven is just some Intel that I have is that, you know, the operators who are kind of tasked to, to use this are really challenged, right. In terms of trusting it, in terms of like how to use it, uh, you know, how to label things like, you know, do you just, do you only go where the algorithms tell you to go or do you, you know, do you use your own methodologies that you've developed over time as an Intel analyst or what would have you to, to go through videos and search and, you know, kind of use your human brain in some of the areas. So there is a, there is kind of a, I think, migration where we move into this paradigm where we actually trust algorithms to do all of the analysis or not the analysis, but to, to do all of the initial screening for us and that, you know, and then we only go where the algorithm tells us and that's where we devote our resources. And I think that is a, yeah, that's a culture shift. So I think it's going to take us some time to get there. It's going to take us time to get the data right. And it's going to take us time to, to build the culture that trusts the data and the, uh, the analysis. Yeah. I hadn't tracked that uh, New York times article where they were talking about um, this group Talon Anvil that was supposedly using project Maven to help ID um, targets and then, like, when they would actually go to the strike, they would move all the cameras away from it um, to avoid accountability. So they lost the useful data resulting from the strike, and then they, in order to avoid accountability. So that that just seemed kind of like a weird, I didn't really know what to do with that. But um, it was an interesting, interesting tidbit. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. And then the other part there is obviously, I think they were talking about synthetic data. They hadn't been using, like, so I guess vigilant is kind of the maven for satellite imagery as opposed to drone imagery um the sensor fusion just seems to make a lot of sense there either have a fuse the the multiple sensors and then have an algorithm that sifts through it or you could almost just run it through two different algorithms and kind of get you to a different answer you've heard people talking about that um multiple times so i guess that's just the next evolution right yeah, I mean that's that's very similar to what, how radar technology works today. There's you know every radar pretty much has like a common filter where uh, there's you know you take multiple tracks, multiple inputs, you kind of correlate them. If something seems completely out of you know out of alignment, you discard it, and so you know you kind of build up that confidence level. And I think the trick with AI, you know, moving forward into the future when we have conflict that's happening, you know, extremely fast, like if the enemy is using AI for targeting. You know, you may not have a, a big response time. You might have to, you know, react to that. And so, you know, I think we're going to have to get to a point where we do trust AI because the the human in the loop will, will be a you know a huge disadvantage. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is just like that first step on on that journey. But yeah, I actually heard a um, CSIS China Power podcast where they're actually you know the the common line is China doesn't care. They're just going to go take all the risks they want, and they'll 
you know, I guess take the human out of the loop faster than than the U.S. is willing to, because, of course, um, no one's saying that there's going to be kind of automated, um, I guess, deployment of weapons right yet in the United States. But in that podcast, the, the gentleman was actually saying, and I guess he had some sources that like the Chinese are actually pretty worried about it, too, and might not be moving as fast as, you know, commenters in the United States think towards that end. Yeah, responsible AI, I think, you know, I don't think any country is probably there yet because you're going to have to be, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to cause a full scale war just because you you trusted an algorithm that that kind of went awry. So, yeah, I think responsible AI will be something every nation uses, even those we consider less responsible nations will will probably have some level of responsible AI, but no doubt the U.S. will probably be a little bit more on the conservative side, so. Next one we got here is Pentagon R&E chief pushes for new tech initiatives, expects bump in funding. And so apparently Heidi Hsu, of course, she was saying that um, Congress might plus her up more than she was asking for in FY23 for the Raider Fund. And of course, I believe they were actually saying she's in. It's less than a billion dollars. So that's a big range there because I think in 22, they were looking for 200 million. And then the problem, of course, is if you have a full year CR, then they don't get any money in FY22 at all to go do those 32 projects, I think, that she wanted to kind of get it initiated. So um, there wasn't too much information here about what exactly was going on. Uh, but, you know, I guess it's good to see. You know, I want the Raider to succeed. I mean, the, the CR is kind of damaging for 22, uh, but it's good to see that it's in the FY23 palm, and we'll see whenever that actually hits the hill. I don't, I don't think it's going to happen in February. So, um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, despite our article on Defense One, I, I also want uh, I also want Raider to be successful. And I think, you know, I've thought about this recently because, you know, I've been a little bit down on Raider, but I, but I was trying to think about, you know, how it could really achieve some kind of you know profound effects. And I think where uh, you know Secretary Shu can really do good things is by going after some of these new technology areas and showing the operational community just how they could be employed. Because, right, like, the community is not yet on board with some of these new technology areas, even AI, right? They're still trying to get their head around how do they use it. Uh, but when you start to get into, you know, quantum and, 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 you know, biotech and, you know, even some, you know, moving forward in some of these, you know, some of these new domains where, you know, with autonomy and stuff, you know, I think she can really do a lot to show the potential and maybe that can kind of influence some of the, you know, concept development and and some of the, you know, uh, some of the more detailed activities that we don't want to happen at the DoD level that we actually do want to happen down in some of these portfolios where more trade-offs can be, you know, can be can be kind of uh, bounced against each other. You know, experimentation, war gaming can kind of, you know, in, in, you know, provide some information about, you know, what's right for the time. So, you know, we don't want Raider to kind of have to do everything, but I think it can be one of those things where you know, it, it shows kind of the next gen potential. Uh, but yeah, hopefully it doesn't get to a billion dollars. I think when you start to get to a certain point, now you're just sucking up funds that would have gone to a portfolio, you know, and now it's, you know, being centrally managed. So I hope I hope it's kept at a manageable level. The one thing I did pick, pick at uh, that was noted in here was she, she mentioned the point about funding Cyber in multiple phases, like not just one, two, and three or whatever, but actually, you know, doing multiple phase, uh, tranches of phase two. 
she gave the example of like, you know, if you give 1.5 million to build a prototype and it wasn't enough money and you're halfway through, then they want to give you additional money. That, that definitely conceptually sounds right. But I think, you know, some of the analysis that, that you've, you've talked about on, on your blog, you know, throwing a lot of money at kind of the same contractors over and over without having some type of end goal, I am not sure that that's going to achieve significantly different outcomes. So a little skeptical about that, but that was the only other thing I took out of the article. Well, the other thing I was kind of skeptical on was she was saying, um, I'm just going to quote it here. In emerging technology, it's not just 5G I'm looking at. I'm looking at the next generation, right? What do you, what you really want is the critical enabling technology that's 6G and possibly 7G. She wants to like influence the standards there. And I'm kind of like on board with what you were saying. Like, how about just deploying the darn things that exist now and showing um, that it works in an operational context and let's really start scaling that thing. 6G and 7G, that's not ready for scaling anytime soon. I don't think that's uh, particularly the point of Raider relative to just like, what can we demonstrate with 5G and these other technology areas that can have an impact in, you know, five years, like, right? Like these are the timeframes that are going to be operationally relevant five to 10 years. We need that now. Um, I think there's already people looking at 6G and 7G. I'm not really sure that this, the Raider fund is the right place for that. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of that could actually be done with the typical S and T money. Like you don't need, you don't need a special pot. I mean, you already have a lot of money going towards towards S and T. So yeah, I'm not sure either where that uh, where that comes into play. But yeah, no, I agree. Stormbreaker, a networked all weather weapon for low collateral damage engagement from breaking defense. This is a pretty interesting update on Stormbreaker, which is a standoff of missile that can get you up to 45 nautical miles away. And I guess they they give a little bit of background, which was pretty interesting on it that. I guess uh, the Kosovo engagements kind of really informed them that small diameter bomb wasn't good enough to kind of like hit maneuvering targets, right, um, and avoid collateral damage. And so they're really looking for a weapon that can kind of, you know, be more targeted, you know, I guess just more on the level of precision that we've been going down, right? And they mentioned that they've got 2,500 rounds already inventoried, um, but they only did 14 successful tests last year i feel like they should be testing more and, and as well but um anyway interesting what, what were you thinking about on stormbreaker no this is definitely i mean so if you look at a lot of the weapons that were deployed in the iraq and afghanistan environments uh you know most of them were things like like small diameter bomb one which was you know a significantly less capable weapon uh, is mostly uh, laser uh, laser guided uh, JDAM, you know, also like primarily laser guided, um, and you know um, they use some Mavericks and, and things like that. We also used Hellfires and APKWS. So you know there there was a small handful of of uh, air to ground weapons that were employed in those engagements. And um, while JDAM is an incredible, you know, incredibly uh, uh, you know, sort of best value, what do you want to say, kind of targeting weapon because they were only like 25K a pop and you'd put them on, you know, some old bomb bodies and you could drop it and get it within a certain radius. Uh, when we get into urban warfare, and that worked okay, right? In the desert, that was okay. I mean, you would have you would have operators that would sometimes like drop like a thousand pound bomb just to take out a truck, which I, I always thought was kind of ridiculous. But um, 
but you know now now when you get into these more precise engagements where you're going to need weapons that you know can take out a particular radar site or uh, you know a particular you know uh, troublesome long range fires kind of kind of capability or something you're, you're going to need something that's much more precise and uh, you know so stormbreaker is definitely this it's basically small diameter bomb too it's it's like the follow one it's much more capable it has you know the biggest thing is it has three different ways of kind of tracking the target um, has much better you know communications has like a, you know the sensors can actually sort of inform uh, its targeting so it has a lot more kind of decision capabilities to uh, to say yeah I can't actually you know acquire the target and and, and get that information and, and sort of update its its tracking its, its targeting uh, targeting uh, uh, you know plan so so yeah there's a lot more capabilities here it is 250k uh, a, a pop versus the small diameter bomb was about 40k so you know there is a price point there too so i think you do have to also recognize like is when you need to use it when you don't need to use it because you know, they start throwing out uh dollars uh, bombs it starts to starts to add up there so especially if you're you know in a full full scale kind of engagement and you're using thousands and thousands of these things uh, maybe it doesn't matter at that point but uh i think we we do need to make sure that we have a suite of weapons in our portfolio sometimes you, you can use you know dumber bombs and sometimes you need the smarter ones so yeah, well, I think scalability really does matter, of course. Like 2,500, you'll go through that pretty darn fast, right? But um, yeah, I think I called yeah. it a missiles, but yeah, you're right. It's it's obviously a munition here. <laughs> There's a not very exciting video of, of an F-35 dropping one. It just kind of fell, right? <laughs> but um, one of the things that didn't really make sense to me here was like their, their points on JADC2 and how it's like, it's going to act as your edge computing capability and it's going to be like passing information back and forth. And I'm like, is like, what's the operational utility of all of that? Right. Or is this like almost like a, I, we don't need kind of the loyal wingman slash other types of drones. Like this is kind of, or this is part of that almost in a way. Yeah. I think this is more um, back to the, Oh man, there was a paradigm. It's probably over a decade old now, but like, um, and I forget the exact name of it, but it's basically like everything is a sensor. And JADC2 is, is kind of a new a new paradigm of that, but much more around the command and control piece. But, you know, so back in the day, there, there was talk of like, you know, putting sensors everywhere. You'd have, you know, sensors on tanker aircraft. You'd have tank, you know, sensors on buildings. You'd have, you know, it's like, you know, different buildings. But a storm breaker goes boom. Like how much, it's going to yeah. have a, a few minutes in flight until it hits its target and I guess it can relay something back and see where it's about to hit. Yeah. But like, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's what it is. It has enough processing power to basically take in the targeting information, process it enough to actually, you know, send it, send something usable back. So yeah, it's just another sensor. That, What's the variant is. cost? If, if like we didn't have all this network capability, if it just like, maybe like that kind of capability was necessary for it to be precision in the way it needed to be. But like, what would, the cheap version of that be would it be 100k if i didn't have some of this jatsy 2 <laughs> capability on it like or maybe i just need one of those and i drop like eight so like i just have a couple variants i don't know i'm just saying no that's a really good point i think i think you're, you're onto something there is like yeah how much of that was needed i think it's a little bit of like a target of opportunity where it was already collecting this data so it might as well might as well actually get the information since it's flying over you know probably enemy territory and collecting some good some good data might as well send that back and use that make that you know usable before it hits the target so i think it's more around that 
I mean, how many Skydio drones can I get for 100K? Of say, or like 250K <laughs> in this case, right? Right. <laughs> uh, all right, let's roll on. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin redesignates the DOD Chief Sustainability Officer. So in order to comply with the executive order for clean energy and sustainability, we have a new CSO, not Chief Software Officer, Chief Sustainability Officer. And I guess they were going to use the Assistant Secretary of Defense for sustainment to be that person, but then it was changed to a senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense on climate. So now that guy um, reports directly to Lloyd Austin, Chief Sustainability Officer. And I guess he also reports directly to the White House on the progress of DOD moving that way. So I guess that it's not really clear who's the boss there. There's two, <laughs> there's dual lines of authority and reporting going on. Um, but I don't really know what to make of this. I mean, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Sustainment probably isn't the wrong, right place, right? When we say s- sustainment and sustainability, those are not synonymous, right? Um, but like how my real concern is like, how much is this CSO going to get into program decisions, right? And is he another layer of review for everything? And will this individual be able to like, you know, force the new JLTVs, for example, to be um, all electric and then moving forward on a lots of different, you know, programs in that way. So anyway, there we go. Any thoughts? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I think you're right. I think that I think sustainability, the sustainability piece will become more, um, you know, more of a focus area, I think, with the administration, particularly given their focus on climate change. So I think you will probably have some of those conversations about, well, could you use sustainable fuels? Could you, you know, could you make that electric? Could you, you know, I, I don't think I don't think that person will have decision authority to the point where, you know, they're saying you can't do that. But I think I think they will probably like sort of generate some of those discussions that, um, you know, that maybe were not had in the past. So, yeah. And then the reporting to the White House, I mean, I, I, I view that as just more of a generic kind of like, hey, here's what we're doing on the sustainability goals, kind of like a chief sustainability officer would report to the corporate board in a company or something like that. So. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's more I think it's more around that than anything else. Yeah, but the CSO, I mean, obviously, the way DOD works, no, like the party line is the line that gets communicated everywhere. But in some respects, if the CSO feels he's being slighted, he can just be like, White House, you're going to do something about like, I have a problem, right? I'm going to go over the head of the sec def. Not saying that that is what's going to happen, but it's a possibility. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll yeah. We'll move on from that one. Uh, But it's also part and parcel of the whole proliferation of chief everything officers, right? Like, it's it's funny that we have, like, the chief data officer who's now reporting to a chief data and AI officer. It's like, how many layers of chiefs are are we going to have? You know, Um, I guess the chief data and AI officer is actually going to, I don't know if they've already redesignated the DepSec Def as, like, the chief management officer, but then that would be another reporting up to a different chief, like three layers of chiefs, right? <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, the, the chief management officer thing is going to play out kind of interesting. It's actually going to be like a um, like, a, like a CIO, comptroller, and uh, DepSecDef sort of combo. It's going to be like a board, defense business board. So, yeah, I don't, there won't be a CMO, but that, that's going to play the role. But, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it is, you know, it'll probably have to be something that <laughs> they evolve over time as they figure out like, where does it make sense for this person to be engaged? They're not going to be able to look at every single thing, uh, but maybe they can go after some of the big areas and, and create some, 
you know, create some, uh, you know, some conversations or maybe improve, you know, in various ways. So yeah, that, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm surprised to the extent that the, the CISO, the chief information security officer wasn't like thrown under one, like you could almost imagine that one reporting up to the chief data and AI officer to a degree as well. Um, but there's so many like overlapping responsibilities in these chiefs. It's hard to kind of know. Yeah, the CISO reports up through ANES. So um, I think they, you know, they have a lot of ties to CIO. I'm still a little confused why the CISO is not under CIO, to be honest with you. But the way they have it structured, it's under ANES. So yeah, you're right, though. That's a good point. All right, Raytheon demonstrates swarm technology in DARPA's fifth field exercise. So we talked about this one, DARPA's project offset to do swarm enabling technologies. And Raytheon here is kind of leading a team. And we weren't too impressed last time with the video of it. <laughs> but in this one, they said that, you know, one individual was able to actually control 130 physical drones and then 30 simulated drones in an urban scenario. So maybe it's doing a lot better and is a lot cooler than uh, the, the video intimated last time. But just a little update there. See, I thought this was the same one we had talked about before. So I, I wasn't sure. I was trying to find what was different. I couldn't figure it out. But yeah, that's good. If this was... Uh... This was an improvement. That's that's good to see because, yeah, I had the video before it was underwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure we'll see more on that coming forward. SCO ends Project Overlord shifts unmanned vessels to Navy. So those are, of course, the four unmanned vessels. I, I think they're also called the Ghost Fleet, right? Um, and one of the things here that was interesting was that they said this was a $370 million investment over three years. And so... For, for four kind of like prototype ships that were able to kind of transit uh, the Panama Canal and do some other things and prove out some things. Of course, it wasn't like a whole new hull design. They took, you know, existing ships and, and retrofitted them. But it seems like, you know, they can actually do pretty austere high end prototyping for not that much money. Right. And um, but then, of course, you know, they're quoting a bunch of uh, congressmen here. Uh, who are basically unconvinced and they don't want to give uh, unmanned vessels the budget request until they basically prove or at least provide a bunch of planning documentation. Um, Mike Gallagher here is saying that they need to effectively demonstrate what the deterrent effects of unmanned systems could be. It's like, okay. Um, <laughs> so there's definitely some skepticism still in Congress, but uh, as this as the Project Overlord moves over to ONR is it? I think it's moving to ONR and not directly to like one of the unmanned program offices over there in the Navy. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens with this one. Well, it did look like I think. Um, let me see the other one. The other one there. It actually was moving to, I think, the PEO office. So some of this actually is going to the PEO because I know there's a lot of work going on there. But then I think you're right. ONR small is and unmanned combatants. Or whatever, yeah, I think, like I think yeah, so. Pete Small's office. Yep. So I think I think they're I think they're the Navy is serious enough about this that they actually are ready to 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 take this to the next steps. I know a couple of people that are working this, and um, yeah, the Navy. I think the Navy is. You'll see in the next budget. I think that a lot more resourcing going to this. But yeah, it's good to see. You know, things can't live in the SCO because that's just not how you fill things. So it's real. I think it's really good good to see that that these are being transferred to the you know, service warfare squadron. 
And, you know, SCO did exactly what I think they were been chartered to do, right? They showed, they did these summit demonstrations. Um, I think it's kind of amazing that these, uh, these vessels that they tested uh, were actually able to complete, you know, journeys to the Panama Canal and, you know, up the West Coast. Like, they were able to, you know, go thousands of miles, um, you know, autonomously. So I think they really proved the capability. Um, the congressional concerns, I mean, I think you do have to, I think it goes with the unmanned manned teaming for, for kind of, you know, fifth gen aircraft and, and drones and how they work together. I definitely understand the skepticism there. I think you do have to figure out like, what is the role in the battle fleet? Like, you know, what, 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 cap- what missions do they provide? And I think the concern is that the Navy was already looking to kind of go a little bit further with, uh, some of these autonomous vessels than, Maybe it seemed like they had fully tested out. So if you're gonna if you're gonna take ships ships out of the fleet and replace them with these, you, you do have to I think demonstrate confidence um, based on the way the budget is structured today. <laughs> you have to demonstrate confidence that that you can actually make those decrements and not impact the the fleet uh, you know the war the war fighting capability. So uh, the deterrent piece is kind of interesting though that that particular comment because that has been a topic of if there is an unmanned system operating in the South China Sea and China blows it up. Let's say, you know, there's a ship there and it's gotten too close and they fire on it and they damage it enough and it sinks. Is that enough to go to war? Right? Like if it was a man, if it was a manned ship and you did that, I think, you know, Vietnam, Vietnam kind of ship, right? We probably would take military action uh, because of that, because you actually impacted troops but how does it work with an unmanned? So I think that deterrent piece is actually a isn't is a kind of an open question about how does it work and and what's the threshold for for actually responding to it. Yeah, the deterrent effect is interesting. I mean, we're gonna have manned ships for a long, long time. You know, at least the next five to ten years. Uh, the unmanned ships is just to like augment capability and do additional sensing and potentially i don't know fire control and stuff like that but obviously the small ones are going to do like um countermine missions and then the larger ones will be kind of like extending eyes and ears are they like why should these unmanned vessels be doing every single thing that the navy does now right it's just like one of these kinds of views in my mind it's like obviously unmanned systems are the future we can quibble about whether that's five years 10 years 30 years but it's obvious that they're going to be able to do some things right and so why are why are we not experimenting at scale already i i get like all right we're not going to commit to a class of 30 or 50 or 100 of these um in production but it just doesn't make any sense to me that you wouldn't kind of allow that freedom like give them a portfolio allow them experiment do interesting things um, show what can be done, like what you're saying about the Raider Fund and the Navy. Like that shouldn't be just the, like the Raider Fund is supposed to be for joint things that the services aren't looking at. There's no reason that the Navy shouldn't be like working towards this in their own capacity, right? And But they just don't really have the acquisition tools to kind of go do it. And obviously Congress is getting in the way as well. But, you know, is some of that, you know, genuine technical problems or is a lot of it just like, well, it's not coming to me in the way I expect. And with, you know, Elaine Luria here saying she wants the, the narrative and the strategy. So, like, do they just need to talk more at them? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that might be part of it is the communication. I think it's I think the thing that may have triggered it was the fact that the Navy wanted to 
retire certain vessels. Um, and I think the idea there was that, well, we'll replace that capability with autonomous systems. And so that may have gotten the emotional piece of this, right? Like we've talked about before, you know, I don't think all decisions in Congress are rational or rationally based. You know, a lot of it does come down to other other factors. Um, and so if you were taking ships offline that had a constituency or there was a, a you know, a particular, you know, emotional attachment to it, then, you know, just saying, well, yeah, this, you know, ambiguous autonomous capability will replace that may not have been satisfactory. So yeah, I think conversations, definitely socializing, any fleet retirements, um, if you're gonna replace it with something that's new, I think you gotta have that conversation and kind of show like what the plan is um, with you. I don't, I hope that the the ask is not, come with me with a, you know, 500 page acquisition plan and, you know, detailed, you know, 20 year, uh, 20 year kind of, you know, plan of exactly what will happen when and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Hopefully they're not looking for something like that, but uh, but at least giving a better sense of, of what the Navy's plan is for retiring something and how that capability gets replaced is probably worthwhile. But I mean, those 500 or thousands of pages of documentation is what it usually takes to get people to start nodding their heads, right? I was kind of half facetiously, I wrote a blog post once, I was just like, you know, why not just like make up a, a plan that sounds reasonable um, that gives you the life cycle, everything, but have no intention of actually doing it, right? Because that's exactly what you might say happened for, you know, several other defense programs. They make a plan, they get going, they run into all these problems, and they just have to re-baseline and do those things anyway. And that happened to most, you know, a lot of the major programs after that kind of in the 2008 to 2012 time frame, right? Um, and so why not just like, just do that. And then it's just like, we know this plan is going to be wrong, but Congress pretends that the future is knowable. So we'll just give them something so they can shake their heads and then let's do good development practices. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I would argue that's like every single acquisition strategy, you know, at the start of it, everything is, uh, everything's perfect. You know, we've got it all worked out and this thing is, you know, no, no, uh, no issues. Everything is going to be perfect. No, no risk will be realized. Um, so, you know, we're funding at the uh, 65% confidence level, and that's absolutely going to get us through to the end. You know, so I don't know if it's any different than what we do today, which is why we need to probably stop doing it, because like you said, it's it's, it's guesswork. But I mean, cases. if you do it like intentionally, then you don't screw it. Because yeah, like, yeah. The, the problem is when you make that plan and then you have this, you know, 10,000 line IMS and then you actually execute to the integrated master schedule and you're too scared to like move off of that. Right. So like if you just said you had it and then just like scrap it, just be like, OK, that was just overhead BS. Like, let's do what really makes sense now um, and learn. Because I feel like, you know, with ABMS and what Roper was saying, he was like, we're not going to treat it like a program of record. We're going to like incrementally learn and get to a, you know, this percent solution and then iterate. It's like, dude, you did not like just saying that meant you don't get any money and like you're just going to have all of this problem and oversight. But if you said you had the, the plan, you showed them the plan and then like veered from that plan. Of course, doing that with full knowledge is um, illegal, right? And dishonest, but like if it creates greater capability and greater value for the taxpayer and like actually has a deterrence effect in terms of, you know, putting systems out that are relevant, you know, maybe it is ultimately for the greater good. Now the best would just be to reform the system or just like have a process that gets there in the first place. But 
Um, well, I mean, the one thing I'd say to that is that milestone decision authorities do have flexibility, uh, you know, to not take two years and to require every single thing to be nailed down and to, you know, allow more iteration. So, you know, milestone decision authorities, I don't take, I don't think take it full advantage of some of their flexibility. Dr. Roper on ABMS, for instance, actually did approve a, a higher level strategy um, that was, that left a lot of room. It wasn't baselined. So that, that was a big part of it, but but it, it kind of laid out some of the some of the basic building blocks, but it left a lot open to, you know, uh, to iteration and, and refinement. So, you know, I think that actually isn't a bad example of maybe one way, one good way to do it. But I think, yeah, I think your point is valid. Is you, yeah, you don't want to be dishonest and say we did all this work, but taking two years and then just basically, you know, having to change immediately because reality hits you is a waste of time. And yeah, I hope at some point we can re- re- refine that system or completely transform it. Yeah, the problem with the plans is when reality hits you, you decide to like be an ostrich and put your head in the ground and just keep going anyway, right? It's like I don't care what other new threats come around that make this irrelevant or what new technologies come around or like what assumptions didn't work. We just got to execute to it. Oh yeah, the incentives are so high for that because disrupting disrupting your approved X strategy and baseline and requirements, disrupting any of that is nobody wants it. Yeah, nobody in the system wants it. So if you do it, um, you are viewed, you know, very unfavorably <laughs> by everybody. So even if it's the right thing to do. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, we should get to the point where we can do that. One part of this uh, unmanned vessels picture will also be maintenance strategy, of course, because Congress and DOD have been doubling down on getting your sustainment um, costs and and life cycle planning in order before you start. Um, and they're talking here in this this new uh, breaking defense article that we're going to move on to about conditions based maintenance being very important for s- servicing the unmanned fleet. So, Matt, what what are your thoughts here, and why is that important? Yeah, no, I, I think this. So, one of the I think there was an article actually recently on Warren Rocks about this about how you know one of the downsides of unmanned or uh, yeah of unmanned uh, vessels is that. They, they need a higher level of reliability. You know, they have different considerations. And, and actually, one of the other articles in your in your deck kind of talked about some of the some of the challenges with unmanned is, you know, they do need to operate more reliably because the SCO actually did show there's some reliability issues. You know, they need to have, you, you know, some of the comms need to be able to be reprogrammed, you know, remotely, um, you know, software, especially in terms of how the interface works with the, uh, the the folks that are kind of managing the the platform remotely, you know, making sure that they can see what they need to see, uh, you know, having the right sensors on it and all that kind of stuff is really really uh, critical. So conditions based maintenance, especially if you have a ship, it sounds like the Navy might move to a place where some of the cheaper vessels, the smaller ones, maybe won't actually go through much repair cycles. I kind of doubt that actually. Once it happens, I, I think. I think we have a tendency to just want to repair things. So I think, I think we'll probably still do it, but, but I think the idea is that that will probably be less of an issue, but some of the larger, more expensive ones, you're going to want to know when things fail so that you can have uh, a maintenance concept. And one of the things they proposed in this article was uh, a tender kind of like for like submarines that, that, that they use for, for submarines and for commercial ships uh, that can sail alongside and actually, you know, maybe bring some maintainers to, to fix something that, that broke. So I think having that conditions-based maintenance, which is um, something that all systems in the F-35 spent a lot of time trying to trying to uh, trying to get right, uh, you know, allows you to predict when something is failing and get ahead of it. 
um, so that it doesn't bring the whole uh, capability down. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting and just that that is something that will have to be considered as we move to a, a larger unmanned fleet, especially as we move into unmanned, more exotic capabilities uh, with a lot of sensors, maybe even weapons on them that, that we don't want to go down, that we can't handle a lot of them having reliability issues. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit, you know, it makes sense for the smaller ones, but like when you go for that kind of automated condition-based maintenance, like based on sensors for the larger, you know, I think there is the kind of valid point of like having a person on board. Like Rick over used to say, I don't want a machine with like buttons, you know, telling me if there's an issue. I want a guy standing right next to the, you know, the valves and the pumps and the pressure like so that he can like smell or hear or see when things go wrong. Like you can't like trust um, some of these systems and maybe that makes sense maybe it doesn't maybe technology is getting along further but like I feel like you're just gonna have to do a bunch of trial and error on these things to see what works and what doesn't right I don't I don't see a way of getting around just like experimentation at scale for a lot of these things and I think you know to the degree that a lot of these programs can't even get started until they have a full life cycle like sustainment plan it's kind of erroneous, right? You almost need to be able to experiment your way into understanding the conditions upon which you will make those sustainment decisions in the future, right? So I don't know. Yeah, I know. I think you're absolutely right. I was reading a book about the, uh, you know, the, the fighter pilots, quote unquote, in, in World War One, and, uh, you know, when, when the air service was just sort of getting started. And it was like, you know, the way they did maintenance back then, the aircraft was like a new thing. They like barely knew how to, you know really do maintenance was like you know you might like pull things out here and there and it was you know it was kind of tough tough to do and there wasn't a whole like construct behind it so i think we are entering a a new paradigm here where we're going to have to get used to you know yeah we don't always have like a bunch of you know uh, service maintainers on board or contract maintainers just sitting there waiting for something to break uh so it's a it's a it's a whole different paradigm and we're going to have to probably establish new systems, new processes, new concepts around how this works. Maybe we have like, you know, in the different areas where these ships will be located, we have little smaller stations that can do smaller repairs and they come into port at at different times and they get things replaced out. Maybe you have tenders go out and they service different vehicles. Like who knows, right? Like there's probably, like you said, there's a lot of experimentation that still needs to happen to figure all that out. But yeah, it's a new paradigm. All right, well, there's a bunch of additional interesting ones, so I'll kind of move pretty quickly here. Army readies to deliver first set of strikers with 50-kilowatt laser weapons, Defense News, and that's, of course, the directed energy M-Shorad, and I guess they gave it the new name Guardian. Um, It looks like Guardian is a quite uh, popular name these days, right? You have the Space Force Guardians, and then... Unfortunately, you also have the Cleveland Indians changing their names to the Guardians, and I don't care about changing them their name, but the Guardians isn't a great name. We'll see what the Washington football team, by the way, uh, comes out with. I heard Commodores and Admirals, uh, I mean Commanders, sorry. Commander would actually be a pretty interesting one. Um, the Commanders versus the Chiefs in Kansas City would be a funny game. But uh, yeah, so they're moving forward with it. Northrop Grumman um, was supplying one of the lasers but they experienced some problems a fire that broke out in testing raytheon seems seems to be the one moving forward mostly and then lockheed is actually looking to enter with uh dimos which i believe is their airborne laser capability that they've been developing uh so 
we've been tracking this one for a while. Looks like they're getting ready to start fielding it. Hopefully it'll be in Europe in not too long period of time. Yeah, yeah, it's good to see. I'm, I've always been skeptical about direct energy, so it's nice to see that it's actually happening. I, I am curious. The only thing I took away from this thing was just that I wanted to see how that test went. I, I couldn't find any results for it, but they said they tested the prototype against one, two, and three class unmanned aircraft systems, rockets, artillery, and mortars. So I was very interested to see how that actually played out, but couldn't find the details. So uh, maybe someday we'll get those. Yep. And next one we got Destroyer Preble to get Lockheed High Energy Laser in 2022. And so this is a Helios laser um, that they've been testing at Wallops Island. And here's the, I guess the interesting part here is that Helios is not a standalone system. They're trying to integrate it with the, the Aegis system and other command and control systems. It feels a lot like Lockheed is kind of taking their own path to JADC2 and just like kind of already starting to, since they've already have a bunch of systems in, in the field, they're kind of like starting to incrementally connect them together in a certain way. So I don't know if it's just kind of like a Lockheed only kind of suite of systems that they're kind of doing or how that will kind of interact more broadly with other um, vendors and systems. But uh, so there's more on the directed energy. Yeah, I think I think Lockheed's actually being really smart here because Aegis has has a lot of confidence behind it, a lot of credibility. And, you know, it's used what it's used in Poland now, the Aegis onshore system and the Pacific uh, PACCOM, Indo-PACCOM commanders trying to get Aegis. Uh, you know, more of them in in the Pacific theater for missile defense. So, you know, it has a lot of, I think, trust behind it. And so integrating additional pieces of capability into it kind of makes sense because now you're just like augmenting a system that's already known. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's probably a good strategy on Lockheed's part. Soldiers seeing outside the Bradley with Army high-tech goggles. And this, of course, is the Army IVAS system, which is jumped off of uh, the HoloLens from Microsoft. And they're... Cloning feeds from three vehicle sensors, the driver, the commander, and the gunner. And they're able to kind of see outside the vehicle while it's rolling. So they can, one, have situational awareness, and two, dismounted soldiers can still use the onboard vehicle sensors to see where it's going and what's happening. And, of course, they can also have access from drone feeds. So it seems like all sorts of um, sensors are going to be kind of integrated into the HoloLens, and it'll be kind of the jack-of-all-trades at some point. Uh, but here's another kind of like movement towards JADC2 in a way. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of IVAS. I think we've kind of, we've had mostly positive things to say about it. I do wonder at what point these soldiers are just getting like too much information though. Like, I'm not sure that if I was in the vehicle or walking alongside the vehicle that I'd want to have like 50 different feeds of different <laughs> things coming at me. Yeah, I, I was assuming I really do it would be like... <laughs> Some guys should just not have IVAS, like in my <laughs> squad, like some guys should not have IVAS at all or like turn it off or something, right? Just to maintain that kind of awareness. And you probably want that kind of like, does everyone need everything or will there like, I'm sure what will actually happen is a bunch of like different types of specialties that will be kind of emerging from, from this. Yeah, no, I think, I think that sounds right. People who, who, who understand how to handle the different information and like what to do with it and when to be concerned. And yeah, I think you're, I think there's a lot of training behind this. Um, you know, just giving people additional feeds doesn't make them better soldiers, doesn't make them more effective. So yeah, this will have to be done, done in the right way. 
For their next acts, former Trump administration DOD officials look beyond traditional defense contractors. So this was a pretty long article, but let's just go over some of the guys that they're talking about. Um, McCarthy, former secretary of the Army, has joined, who used to be at defense contractors, uh, has gone to a number of uh, interesting firms. Esper himself has gone to Imperius. Former Navy acquisition chief James Hondo Gertz has joined Esper at Imperius, um, and so did Air Force General Reigns. Will Roper is now at Valanzi. Ellen Lord has joined uh, Colorado-based Void Space Holdings, um, and they have some subsidiaries doing aviation stuff. And then Brian Callen, his his comment here is he's curious of whether these top officials can help the companies break in a significant way into DOD sales. So I guess that's that's the whole question here. It looks like a lot of these officials have been going for the kind of new emerging tech startups that are, you know, super phase two, phase three, you know, starting to scale. Um, but it's not really clear whether they'll be able to. And will these guys be able to help them get over the line or not? That's what's in everyone's mind, I suppose. Yeah, the one thing that did come to mind immediately, um, I didn't look up the study, but there is a study that was done about um, boards, corporate boards that have defense, former defense officials and generals on them have actually like lower rates of returns. So kind of kind of uh, kind of funny. But, you know, just in general, I think, you know, companies, I think you have to like think about why you want these folks if you want them purely just to understand what DOD's needs are, um, then I think they're the wrong people in many cases because they're not, they're not as intimate with some of the, uh, you know, things that are going on. They're not in the, in the details. They operate at higher levels. Uh, some of these, some of these folks definitely know, you know, more, but I think having them as board members, I always do wonder the value of that. Um, yeah, they can say DOD operates this way. They can say, well, the last time I got a classified briefing, this was what the latest well, thing was. Well, you know, one thing, I mean, I, I completely agree with you, but the thing that comes to mind is, like, if you're a program officer or contract officer and you look at this this company, you're like, man, I don't know, like, are they worth it? They have a couple of investors, but, like, what are they doing? Oh, Ellen Lord is on their board. All right, I can give them a contract. Like, yeah, maybe but, some uh, of it goes to responsibility determination, you know? Yeah, except that that's not really factored, though. I mean, the contracting officers definitely wouldn't factor it. And, and most of the cases when you're doing a source selection, yeah, you're just getting an RF, you're getting a proposal. So, I mean, I feel like they might help. I would rather see them be consultants or I really respect what Will Roper did. He's not just like he didn't get on like 20 boards and just, you know, just play the board game, which, I, you know, I always wonder the value of all that. But but he actually became a CEO and is like trying to, you know, see this through. Uh, I also do like what Secretary McCarthy did, though. He actually was really selective about where he went, and he actually picked small firms where he could be involved in sort of the, the, the business process. And, and he actually came with, like, knowledge of, like, things that he, he knew the Army needed to get after. So so I do appreciate that. I think I actually thought his the thing that how they laid out his decision process here made a lot of sense. But sometimes just a bunch of four stars who have been out for five years sitting on all these boards, I, I don't know. I, I kind of question the value. Raytheon, P&W, that's Pratt & Whitney, and suppliers face civil suit related to alleged hiring manipulation. And so the problem here is that the government is saying that the executives at these firms were agreeing not to poach each other's aerospace engineers, uh, which had the effect of reducing costs by restricting the ability of those employees to find new jobs and higher pay. 
And so, of course, that goes to bar bargaining power and some collusion effects here. Um, you know, you'd think, though, government would love that because they'd be like, well, I pay on the hour and that means it's reducing my costs. It's almost like what GSA was like forcing these um, the, the guys on this, the schedule to do. They're like, you have to cut your labor rates by 40 percent. Just like, <laughs> OK, well, um, but anyway, obviously, this is wrong and this is bad. But <laughs> I just thought it was kind of funny uh, in terms of like, well, the government, you know, might benefit here. Like, that's actually how the government thinks about things. Right. Like, just reduce the cost, like by brute force. Yeah, yeah, this would this would play well into some of the yeah the costing work that you've, you've been involved with. This would be great. Contracting officers would love this, but yeah, definitely bad business. USMC Nemesis and Naval Strike Missile Logistics explained. So the USMC, uh, they're they're actually looking to have in their expeditionary advanced base operations right of the future. Um, they have a bunch of different things that they're looking for. The, the big one here that we're obviously going to talk about is the JLTV armed with naval strike missiles, which are calling Nemesis. And of course, the naval strike missile here, subsonic speeds 0.7 to 0.9 Mach with advanced passive seekers. Of course, that's infrared. And um, so they're going to be able to uh, go after ships, but also other types of targets. And the naval strike missile here is 2.2 million. The one thing on the logistics that was interesting to me was that they're saying that the CH-53K, like, of course, they're going to be able to use the, the C-130s to move it around and other types of ships. But the CH-53K is able to hoist um, the LAV-25A2s, but also the JLTV Nemesis and other JLTV variants to fly on austere positions. So... I was actually kind of wondering why the Marines were still so gung-ho on the CH-53K despite its enormously high price tag. I think it's $150 million to $200 million a copy, and it's had a bunch of problems. But it looks like, you know, this kind of deployment um, concept is really, you know, what they're going to want the CH-53 for. I wonder what other missions they're they're thinking about it for, but this is a big one. Well, I think it goes to, um, but the, the tyranny of distance or whatever, I think they were... Yeah, quoting in the article, um, the Marine Corps definitely, right, with the Force Design 2030, they're very focused on, uh, which I actually think they got ahead of, you know, if you look at the General Hyten's joint uh, warfighting concept before he, before he left, he published, you know, a bunch of strategic guidance on that. And it's all about expanded maneuver and the ability to, you know, to, to aggregate and disaggregate and to be able to, you know, move forces around as needed and to stay resilient. So I think Marine Corps really is kind of ahead of the game on a lot of this in terms of thinking about that and like, hey, we want the ability to, uh, you know, get out of Dodge if we need to or to get into Dodge, you know, when we, when we need to. So, yeah, a lot of their, a lot of their uh, technology investments and, and I think everything with the JLTV and how they're using it different ways uh, gets or gets at that. And so uh, naval strike, adding, adding the naval strike missile to it is just, uh, yeah, makes a lot of sense. And being able to transport it by helicopter just makes it that much easier. Yeah, there. One thing that didn't really make sense to me. Okay, so the CH-53K is larger than the E, so it can actually, I guess, pack a JLTV internal to its payload. But the JLTV fully loaded, I just looked it up, is twenty-one thousand pounds. And so the CH-53E, the old models, I I got like it was hard to find what their actual external payload is. Somewhere between twenty-seven thousand and thirty-two thousand. But you could just carry a JLTV underneath a CH-53E. So I'm still not 100% sure on 
what we're getting out of the CH53K besides plan continuation bias. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it's moving along. I guess that program's too far advanced to, to, for anything to happen to it. Yeah, the only thing I could think, yeah, you're right there. It looks like the, the K is about 32,000. The E is like more closer to 27,000. So, yeah, maybe they just wanted to have, you know, have a little extra um, tolerance there. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. All right, last one that we'll do is the KC46 new vision system in limbo as panoramic issues come into view. So they're already moving on to remote vision system 2.0. And I was surprised to see they, they're still working to get through PDR. And their concern is here, once they get through PDR on version 2.0 of the remote vision system, then that baseline gets locked down and the Air Force is kind of stuck with it. So they're kind of wondering, what will that actually be? And then also who's kind of on the hook for for paying for this thing, um, but not all is well in the KC-46 land. What what'd you take out of this, Matt? Yeah, this thing, this thing has been a nightmare remote vision system. I mean, I think uh, moving away from, from the, you know, the proven concept of having an operator who was looking down at the aircraft and can make adjustments as he needed to and, you know, making it where he could sit up, but now you can't see things right and there's parallax and all sort of weird effects and depends on where the sun's at and all this stuff. So, yeah, it's a it's been it's been a nightmare for KC forty six. I think they probably wish they would have stayed low tech, maybe on how they uh, solve this problem. But um, you know, this also is a kind of a paradigm of the fixed price nature of, of all this. Is they they got Boeing to work on the RBS two design without adding any additional you know funds to the contract because that was kind of the fixed price uh, concept. Um, but now they know they're going to have you know if they approve this you know, anything that comes after it is going to be an additional thing. And so they're reluctant to approve this PDR design and without understanding how the panoramic display is going to, going to look. And this is very similar to things that we experienced on, on F-35, where we were producing aircraft and we, we knew there were issues that had not been resolved. And so the way we handled that was we said, well, if there's any, any issues that we know about today and we negotiate this, this cell rep contract, uh, we will put those on contract, and once those fixes are in for those different issues, uh, if they require a modification, we will share the cost, 50-50 of, of that modification. So I, I do think they could come up with something here, too, is, okay, if the panoramic display requires additional additional fixes, uh, maybe the government splits the cost uh, with Boeing uh, to, to, to make those updates to any of the previous planes um, or ones that are in the pipeline. So I don't know. I think, I think they could get creative here. Uh, but definitely sounds like they're uh, they're at a decision point. They're not going to be able to probably wait too much longer to make this decision. I wonder if you totaled up the total cost of the RVS, the remote vision system here, and you asked, I mean, the poor guy, you know, that operates the booms in, in the, the older um, tankers, like I, I've seen pictures of it and it looks like it sucks, but I'm sure if you said, well, all of you operators split the amount of money that we've spent on the RVS, I bet you they'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll, I'll operate it manually and go through the discomfort for like two million extra dollars a person or whatever it turns out to be like what's the yeah you know i've actually i've actually wondered about like what the operators said on this because i've actually flown on a couple of kc-135s and and sat back there and actually like you lay down you actually physically lay down like your your eyeballs are like perpendicular to the to the ground so like you know it's not it's not an uncomfortable position i actually wonder what the user's Actually, if they if they got if they were able to give any feedback on this and said, yeah, I think I would much rather be sitting upright or 
you know, I wonder if they said, or if they were asked, they would have said, no, I actually am pretty happy with the way it is. And I have visual and I can adjust based on my eyeballs versus relying on some system to tell me. So yeah, I always kind of wondered that if they, how much user feedback they got on that. That's all we got time for. Talk to you next week, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.